What's up, everyone, and welcome back to Americana Uncovered. This is episode 8, and we will be going to discuss the history of American family road trips. So for this topic, uh, if you saw my Instagram post, it's going to be a three-part series because there's just a lot of information um, on this topic, and I didn't want to squeeze it into, you know, one uh, 40-minute episode, 30-minute episode, when I think it could be probably well over an hour of information uh, on this topic. So in this first episode, we are going to be really getting the uh, groundwork going. We're going to be talking about... So it's uh, the f- history of family road trips, and we're going to be talking about roads and trips. So we're really starting from the uh, from the ground up here. But without these two uh, aspects of it, you don't have a road trip. And, um, you know, it's fairly new, the um, concept of a, a family road trip. I mean, the... The golden age of it is only, I would say, 40, 50 years removed. But, um, you know, the highway system and everything, to me, it's crazy to think how relatively new this all is. And, you know, the whole scheme of things of our country. It's not like we had, uh, you know, the ability to travel safely and efficiently across the country, um, you know, even 60, 70 years ago, it was a hassle and uh, very unsafe. So, um, <clears throat> like I said, this is just a, a great topic. Uh, the, the video I shared was um, the National Lampoon's Amer- uh, Family Vacation. That's just the probably, you know, the pinnacle of um, all the stereotypical family road trips uh, thrown into one. So I would suggest watching that movie um, to get a good laugh. And also the book uh, I've been reading and basing a lot of my information off of for this um, topic is Don't Make Me Pull Over, um, An Informal History of the Family Road Trip by Richard Rattay. Um It's just a great, uh, great book. Uh, about halfway done now. So there's a lot of stuff. Uh, like I said, informal stuff, but there's also a lot of stuff he uses um, uh, during his personal uh, life and growing up in the back of a station wagon, station wagon with uh, two other brothers and a sister and a, a dad and a mom that would go on road trips three times a year. So it's cool to see all those little um, little real details that he experienced. Uh, it's just funny to read. Um, I, me personally, I didn't really go on any family road trips. Um, I mean, mostly we would go to like upstate New York and stuff for the weekend or Pennsylvania, but nothing crazy like a cross country or even down to Florida kind of road trip thing. So I definitely wish that I had experienced those um, aspects of it, but I will make sure uh, in the future that I will be taking my future children on uh, family road trips, whether they like it or not. But like I said, we're going to be going over in this episode um, the history of roads, really, and the history of trips and family trips. So without further ado, let's get right into the history of roads. (laughs) 
So like I said, the U.S. High highway system was fairly new, and that helped uh, spark an interest in, uh, in a lot of Americans to go on family road trips. But we're going to have to go way, way further back um, to start there. So the first roads were basically paths trampled down by horses and foot, foot traffic, mostly by Indians. And it was in 1795 that the first resemblance of a road uh, would come to fruition as an actual road that we would, uh, you know, notice. Um, it stretched 62 miles between Philadelphia and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And like I said, that was the first engineer road. Um, it was only paved with crushed gravel. Uh, tolls, uh, drivers had to pay a toll back then even to drive. And um, so it's the same as, you know, your regular highway system now or your, like, for us in New Jersey, the Parkway, you enter the road, You there's a toll booth, you pay the toll, and then you're able to drive on the road. So even uh, 230 years ago, we were still paying to drive on uh, roads. Um, uh, these were also known as toll booths, or not toll booths really at that time, but they were called, known as pikes. So that's where you get maybe the turnpike, the all those different... Um, names to get on there was the your entry to get onto the road um but the road wasn't built by the state or anything it was built uh, by private investors so the state of pennsylvania did not uh front money for the road to be built it was these private investors that saw an opportunity um for horse and carriages and stuff for people to be able to access and um, transport goods back and forth so they took it upon themselves to front the money to pay for these roads but they were going to make that money back in the tolls um, around the country other roads smaller roads started to um, pop up the 62 mile stretch was a pretty uh, pretty long stretch for that time if you could imagine uh, it cost uh, about 1500 to 2000 per mile which was um really outstanding back then so this guy must have been uh crazy to build <laughs> this road but they did come uh with some problems they they flooded out and they were actually very dangerous so thomas jefferson took the road from a road from virginia to dc and he considered it the worst road in the world uh vowed to congress to fix the conditions they they were just <clears throat> these uh travels and would just take a toll on the, the rider's body alone just sitting in a horse and carriage you know bouncing back and forth uh teeth chattering uh, experience it's like going through a boxing match trying to get from one um one destination to the next so, um, in 1802, it marked the first time federal money was being spent on roads. Uh, national roads were set to be built uh, to open the gateway to the West. Uh, started in 1812, um, but stalled with the war, and this would become this would become um, a reoccurring theme. It seems like every time the uh, road and car business started to get some some full steam ahead it was either delayed or or just totally forgotten about due to a war it didn't um you'll see in in uh in a little bit that it wasn't 
one specific war. It was just every time someone got ahead and, you know, a new um, opportunity came or new, you know, design came, it was put on the back burner. Also, at this uh, time, railroads started to boom, and like I said, roadways took a back seat for a while. Uh, road, road construction then again picked up, but not for cars. Um, America became obsessed with the bicycle and needed roads to drive on them safely. So these aren't the, uh, you know, bicycles you're thinking of uh, now with the two normal-sized wheels and a, a speed gears and all that other stuff. These were these bikes with the humongous front tire and the you had to climb up on a ladder to get on the bike and the small back tire. So to ride these things alone on gravel or, you know, grass or anything, was it was dangerous to ride these bikes uh, just to begin with. It didn't matter what surface you were on, but they were didn't have anywhere to ride them on, so people decided to make these roads for these bikes. And it was also at this time that the safety bicycle quote-unquote was designed which is what we think of as just a normal bicycle with two wheels the same size um, a normal height that you could just get on the bike and america was all over these uh riding the bike on this riding the bike kick and um that's really what the first couple roads when they were picked back up um were intended for were bike riders so in 1893 uh, the motor wagon by Charles and Franklin Dorr uh, was invented. And um, I also saw somewhere it was known or referred to as the uh, quadcycle or something like that. You know, whatever, four wheels bicycle. Um, and it they were building it out of their garage. Uh, I think they said they the first year they pumped out like 12 of them, which is incredible to think. But... Um, like anything new, they, they weren't um, really taken upon by uh, Americans at first, and they were obviously very expensive. They weren't that accessible. There was only 12 of them, so it, was a, it took a while to get the ball rolling. In 1896, the first reported car accident in New York actually happened, and there's a bit, a little bit of symbolism here as the driver hit a bicyclist uh, on the, in the in New York. And this was kind of the symbolism, symbolism as uh, the car was overtaking the bike's popularity. So, so we got our first kind of look at a car. We got our first resemblance of a road. Um, things are taking a while to come along here, but. Uh, the the ball gets rolling a little faster here. So the first attempt at a, a cross country trip was uh, Hornito Jackson in 1903. He was at a bar with his friend in California, and he set a bet that he could drive across country back to his home in Vermont. So he bet fifty dollars that he would be able to. I know fifty dollars now. Insane. Um, but he bet him $50 that he would be able to drive across country. So on May 23rd, he left. Um, and just before he even got out of the state of California, he had probably the worst time ever. So he blew out tires. Uh, the headlamps he had were not working. Not to mention that he got lost and had to go about 100 and something miles out of the way. 
He ran out of gas. Uh, then they had a bicycle on the car, and the when they ran out of gas, he brought a, um, a mechanic with him. Because it's a good thing he did, or else he would be stranded probably in California. Uh, but they took the bicycle and went to go ride to get gas. Then the tire blew out on the bicycle. Um, so they had a walk to go get gas. So this was all before they even left the West Coast. But around uh, the nation, they started, you know, newspapers and other people were reporting seeing this guy. And he was telling um, everyone his story. And it started to actually gain um, national attention. And by July 26th, almost three months later, he finally reached New York. And um, it was just... He rolled into New York. They had a dog. Also, they had to get uh, goggles for the dog because the dust was in his eyes too much. So it was this guy, um, his mechanic friend and dog all rolled into New York. And that was the first uh, cross-country trip. And then after that, um, some people started doing it a lot. Actually, a few more people started doing it, but um, they were making better timing. Then there was some guy... Uh, that he traveled all of Europe, but it took him, I mean, he drove all of Europe, but it took him over a year. He did it in parts and stretches. So, I mean, this, I would consider this the uh, first, first trek across the U.S. because this guy just one at a time um, went for it and miraculously made it half the roads weren't even roads they just had to find paths and like I said just the directions alone it's not like he had a map of it's one thing to try to understand a map and and drive around a map but it's another thing when the road just ends in the middle of a, a field and you ah let's just take this grass path and see where it goes but anyway um, Carl Fisher had the first idea to build a coast-to-coast highway in 1912, and he wanted to have uh, it completed for the 1915 World's Fair in San Francisco, so people would be able to drive from New York cross-country to San Francisco. Um, this didn't happen. It took, uh, I mean, it did happen eventually, but there was just, it didn't happen for the 1915 World's Fairs. There was a lot of setbacks. It, 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 um, it ended up being a lot harder than he originally thought. Um, and then we had the Lincoln Highway that would be constructed, uh, constructed, but parts of it um, for over 20 years would remain undeveloped. So it, it, they said, I think it was out west, um, they had Boy Scouts go through the woods and post signs saying Lincoln Highway, like through the woods where the road eventually would be. And it was almost 20 years later and people were just hiking in the woods and (laughs) there were still signs for the Lincoln Highway. Um, So like I said, it wasn't as easy as um, people thought it was going to be. Thomas H. McDonald, he was appointed head bureau of public roads at the age of just 38. And by 1953, he was responsible for 3.5 million miles of roads paved. Uh, he really got the ball rolling with the roads that we know today. Um, he came up with a highway number system. East and west were even, and north and south were odd numbers. Um, he was really an entrepreneur of um, building up safe and, and efficient roads. Um, 
but when Eisenhower um, got appointed as president, he had his own plans, and he dis uh, he dismissed McDonald after 34 years in the bureau. Um, safe to say, he wanted basically his own his own uh, ideas, and McDonald wasn't really um, too keen on. Uh, you know, compromising. It was either his way or the highway. Get it? <laughs> so Eisenhower wanted an interstate um, system, which was larger roads, larger than two lanes. Um, it could be driven at high speeds. Um, it was more uh, more safe, more efficient. It would cost way more money, but he wasn't into these two-lane highways. He wanted something similar to like an autobahn style where anyone could um just hop on the highway and and travel where they wanted to and it was also then that the cold war was heating up and um, eisenhower thought that if they were going to if united states maybe was going to get bombed or whatever um they were going to attack the big cities and he also thought of this as a good way for people to get out of cities fast in case of an emergency um, so between 1945 and 1955, um, the number of American roads uh, went from 26 million to 52 million. And in 1956, the Federal Aid Highway Act passed, and 41,000 miles of interstate highways would be built. Originally, this was estimated at 30 billion, and uh, would be finished in 1966 and they were not even close um the actual cost of the project was 130 billion and it didn't and in 1981 still five percent of the road was not the roads were not completed and it was at this time that it took so long for these roads to be built by the time that they got to the ends of the roads that were they were building the the roads that they started on 20 years prior, 15 years prior, were starting to decay and and um, need repair already. So it was a never-ending job. But like I said, the whole point of it was was still intact, and now you could drive almost anywhere in the United States as long as you had a car and some money. So um, this really opened up, like I said, the the. Um, easiness and accessibility for families that were maybe were weary before about these two-lane highways or these not not uh, highways at all uh, prior to that um, to you know if if you were going to Florida if you were going to anywhere most people would flock to California or Florida warmer weather things um, this would give you that extra comfort of a peace of mind that we're on a safe highway you know these most of these roads were just constructed and we can get there in um pretty efficient time so that's really it for roads um after that we were gonna we are going to go into um, the trips aspect of it so we're gonna head back to thomas mcdonald's highway system that started to pop up in the 20s like i said he was a real entrepreneur innovator of the roads that were um available to the um, americans before the whole interstate system so they started to pop up in the 20s and he made sure that there was gas stations garages mechanics 
um, available so people you know didn't have the urge not to go on the highway because they were afraid of running out of gas or if the car broke down there was also a lot of roadside stands that provided fruits and vegetables so around this time in the 1920s auto camping became a very popular um way for americans to go on trips this is what they would do so either they would have their car or truck and then they would have a camp uh tents in the back and they would travel to what they wanted to see and at night they would pull over on a roadside maybe in a park maybe sometimes on people's property and and pop up a uh, tent and camp there for the night um there was and americans just became obsessed with this auto camping at this time so in 1924 15 million americans were said to have gone auto camping and they would visit national parks national forests and uh points you know his uh points of historic interest um at first locals were mad obviously that they're um camping out on their property or camping out in their town and and um seeing all this these people but they realized that these people are bringing money into their community so the locals started welcoming the idea of auto camping and um they started to set up private campsites in um, some areas and they would usually charge two to three dollars a night per car and um these campsites were you know usually in the woods whatever they had little plots um cleared out and there was fire pits picnic tables gas stoves waters um and it was really in the mid-20s that uh different campsites actually popped up with private cabins so you didn't even need the tent anymore you could bring the whole family in the car go right to the campsite and there would be a cabin there with beds heats kitchens and these started popping up all over the place. Um, it really brought a lot of popularity. This was the first, uh, the first really uh, iteration of family road trips, uh, you know, destinations was camping. Um, you were out in the open. You were away from home. You were with your family. Everyone was enjoying each other's company. Uh, company. Um, there was certain places uh, called. Uh, Cozy Court, uh, Paradise Inn. Uh, th- these were just filled with neon lights trying to attract people to their campsites. And it was booming. People were driving all over the country, you know, where the, the roads were available, thanks to Thomas McDonald. But this also, like the roads due to the war, came to a crashing halt due to the crash of the stock market. And although the, the uh, travel was down, the roads didn't stop being built it was actually during the great depression that route 66 was completed so there may have not been so many people on the roads but the roads themselves started to or i'm sorry continued to grow um it wasn't until really world war uh two that uh after world war two that americans got back on the road so the reason for this is the economy boomed um workers made also double what they made in 1960 as opposed to what they made in 1946 so i think they were saying like uh um in 1960 uh just a basic um basic laborer worker was making what you know a head of a corporation or a, a vice president or some higher up at a corporation would make in 1946 so they were making a lot more money than before um, 77% of families owned at least one car. And um, 
labor unions uh, regulated 40 hours work week, 40 hour work weeks with uh, paid time off. So uh, most majority of the blue collar workers had at least one to three weeks off during the uh, week. I'm sorry, during the year. So this made it way more accessible. They had more money. They had a car and they were home even more. So uh, before this, uh, there was no you know, regulations on work. So the, a guy can go to work at seven o'clock in, in the morning and not come home until who knows when. So he didn't have extra time to be planning vacations with his family. Another aspect of it is that so many people and soldiers that were in the war were just traveling all over the place. They were traveling Europe, all over the world. And they, when they came home, they said, you know, we know the whole rest of the world. Why don't we discover what's in America so like I said they were making more money they had more time off and they had the itch to travel um, also they were not traveling alone soldiers were settling down marrying and having babies uh, 2.5 million babies a year after the war hence the name baby boom um, so there was just family young families popping up all over the place with money to spend and, and time to spend it with their family a lot of people would say now well that's nice but why wouldn't they just take a plane to california or travel uh or or florida or stuff like that but air for <clears throat> air travel at this time was still way too expensive it was only for the upper upper high class so for to put that into perspective a flight from new york to la was 208 dollars that would be equivalent to 1761 dollars in today's money for one for one passenger so for you and your family to go from new jersey to disney world it would be about uh six grand just in uh just in flight money um and the car also uh gave you a whole nother aspect of flights that that flights did not is that you got to see the country as you were traveling through it you weren't just in the sky um, and also you were in a tight corners um, you were with your family you were bonding with your family there was a lot to see a lot to talk about and this is how families became to grow closer um, so like I said in um, 1954 Eisenhower's interstates were introduced and they, they were marketed as safe reliable uh, carefree um, and you know in it was just a way more accessible um, way for families to get around so it, the country's population was at 165 million people and out of those 165 million people, 62 million had visit, visited national parks in 1955. Then we jump forward to 1972. The national parks over uh, gained over 100 million visitors at, 100, at 165 million visitors for the year 1972. Um, it was also around this time that America had the fascination of going out west due to popular movies and TV. The Magnificent Seven, Once Upon a Time in the West, um, a bunch of uh, Clint Eastwood spaghetti westerns. People became obsessed with the wests. So 
it was a perfect time to drive out there, drive out to the desert, drive out to California. Uh, Western themes, restaurants and hotels were popping up everywhere. Um, even if it wasn't out west, there was uh, like in the last couple episodes, we talked about the Wigwam Hotel that popped up in Kentucky. People just thought it was a nice novelty. You know, they see all these things in movies and now we could sleep in um, a teepee. So that became a very big uh, fascination with people. Um, Florida also was a huge uh, attractor, um, even before Disney. Uh, obviously, the warm climate and um, a lot of soldiers were stationed there during the war. So they were familiar and they wanted to show their family around and they, they just really migrated towards uh, Florida. Um, also, NASA with the Cape Canaveral um, aspect of that they were a lot of people were intrigued and 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 attracted to that whole aspect as a a attraction so in 1936 um, cypress gardens opened Uh, 1938 marine land uh, was considered the first ocean aquarium that opened like i said nasa cape canaveral rocket launches missile tests and then in 1971 disney world opened so florida was like it still is today one of the main attractions for you know road trips and there's just so much to do there so like i said in the roadside attractions episode this is when um people had had the fruit stands and vegetable stands started to expand on what they were offering you know uh, early on the the fruits and vegetables were all well and good but they decided they could add on to these things and make you know more money for them and also make the customers happy so that's when they started to create these crazy signs these roadside attractions they would expand to hotels to rest stops to do things to draw more customers and accommodate them and it was a win-win for the you know customer and for them it was also um that amusement parks started to pop up and people were you know the amusement parks as in um national lampoon's family vacation were the final destination but it was the trip that you know the stops in between and stuff that they would make to get to that final destination so in 1961 six flags in texas opened 1967 six flags over georgia opened 1967 astro world uh opened we had bush gardens open 1964 san diego sea world open 1970 cleveland weird place to put a sea world open and in 1973 orlando sea world opened then like i said 71 disney opened you just have these uh these amusement parks and things that are attracting families to come um popping up all over the country they're accessible to get to people have time off um it's and the whole road trip aspect of it building you know the it's it's not now like when you go to just say for a family goes to disney you drive to the airport you're disney disney you know that's that's your vacation back then it was packing the car it was playing you know i spy in the back of the car with your family it was getting on each other's nerves arguing stopping off at this rest stop seeing this historical landmark you know it's just seeing the country and that's that's really the whole um aspect that this country that all these road trips and all this stuff is really missing out on now um it's 
it's obviously way easier and air airline travel is a lot cheaper than it was back back then but i i just think that um the whole family bonding experience really made uh for a great experience and and like i said it was a, a vacation you know an experience on top of a vacation whereas now you're just going from one destination to the next and you don't really know what you're passing through you miss out on, on a lot of the country um so that's really it for um trips and roads uh, i just wanted to throw in some essentials that you could find maybe in the car while you were um traveling that became popular in uh the 70s late 60s uh, early 70s so some of the essential equipment in the road were fuzz busters and cb radio cb radios so in the 1970s the uh, oil crisis hit and there was a temporary 55 mile an hour nationwide uh, speed limit they said that this would save uh you would save on fuel and you know they wanted to stop um using a lot of these cars back then didn't great get great gas mileage you had a lot of muscle cars you had a lot of cars that were like boats on wheels and they just sucked down gas so they figured if they could regulate this the uh miles per hour at 55 it would save on emissions um and then eventually they made it permanent they deemed it that that was gonna stay 55 not only to save on gas but they deemed it much safer um, little did they know because they deemed it safer and they, they claimed that it worked and made it permanent because there was less uh, accidents and fatalities on the road, but they didn't take into account that less people were on the road because there was less gas, so there was just less traveling altogether. So take it as you will, it really didn't um, do too much. Uh, people were in uproar and protest over the speed limit. Uh, Dale Smith created a device after getting caught in a speed trap. Uh, this was the Fuzzbuster, and it started to fly off shelves. So this would be in a device that you could put in your dashboard or somewhere in your car. And when the police, you were e either coming up to a speed trap or in a speed trap or using, um, the cops were using radar, it would pick up the signals and it would flash on your dashboard or beep. And um, it would let you know, you know, if you're going 70, maybe cruise down to 50, 55, and until uh, you are you don't see the beeping lights anymore, and then you're in the clear. Uh, I remember my grandpa used to have this even back in the 90s in his car, and we would, it would I would always be so uh, intrigued over what it was, and um, it's actually funny to think now, like now you're just on ways, and um, you see the little police icon pop up but back then this was the uh the uh the height of technology um like i said it started to flying off shelves and uh it cost about around what two speeding tickets would cost um so you know you figure you're probably gonna if you're if <laughs> if you're really against the speed limit you're probably gonna get some speed tickets so purchase this and uh you know fly under the radar when they're watching you and after that you're in the clear um they made it made over 400 million by the mid 80s so people like i said my grandpa had one up until probably 2005 2006 he was still holding on 
Also another piece of technology were CB radios. It stands for Citizens Band. It dated back to World War II, but it was popularized in the 70s for personal use. Mostly truckers um, kept fellow CB, CBers informed on where the cops were. Um, you know, they could let them know what traffic was ahead, what road to take, um, speed traps ahead, if you know, any, anything, but it was also a form of communication before cell phones that connected everyone on the road. So a lot of people had tag, tag lines, nicknames. Um, there was different abbreviations for all this other stuff. It also became very popular through the song, a convoy, and it was widely popularized by Smokey and the Bandit and Dukes of Hazard. Um, so, like I said, um, people, it was, uh, people were just, it's just funny to think now you have to like, now you have, everything is just on your cell phone. Not only the directions, but where the cops are, you have all these alerts, just the ways app alone is basically all this technology in the seventies and eighties combined into one app, which is very convenient, but also a little depressing, <laughs> but, um, also, like I said, uh, the families were staying connected in the cars, too. Not everyone was on their cell phones. Not everyone had a personal DVD player, even though I know that sounds outdated now. But you even had the TVs in the back of the headrest. You got the iPads. You got the iPods. You got, you know, if you go on a, a two-hour road trip to your families or something. The whole car is has their headphones in and, and everyone's silent doing their own thing. But back then, people were playing... Um, I Spy, the license plate game, the Mad Libs, um, Mattel's handheld football, Etch-a-Sketch, you know, getting on each other's nerves, arguing, singing, uh, talking. So this really, like I said, bonded family, fam families together, and it was a trip within a trip. And with the birth of all this technology and cheaper airlines, we really lost that, and that's when the family road trip started to decline. But... We are not going to get into that today or the next episode that will be saved for the uh, probably the third because we still have a lot of info to go um, on this topic. And I think episode two um, of the family road trip was the real meat and potatoes of uh, the heyday golden age of family road trips. So um, I don't know. I hope I didn't bore you guys too much with the history of roads and the history of trips, but I feel like without that, we couldn't get to where we're going to. So I'm very excited to be talking about the station wagons and all the different quirks and restaurants and roadside attractions and all that other stuff coming up in the next episode. So like I said, I hope you enjoy, enjoyed this one. Be on the lookout next Friday for uh, episode nine, part two of this. Uh, follow me on Instagram, Americana underscore uncovered. Email me at Americana uncovered at gmail.com with any other questions, concerns, uh, recommendations. Hope you guys like this. Uh, hope you guys have a great Easter if that's what you celebrate. If not, have a great whatever. Have a great weekend. If you celebrate Passover, have a great one of those. I think that's starting Wednesday. Um, yeah so i look forward to seeing you guys next week and have a good weekend